Welcome to the Tiny Living Beings podcast. I'm your host, Julia Van Etten. Each episode, I have a conversation with a scientist about a microorganism they like and why it's interesting to them. Our planet is full of billions of different microscopic organisms, most of which are still unknown to science. The ones we do know are diverse and strange. This week, I spoke to Dr. Kyle David, who, in typical Kyle fashion, broke the one rule of this podcast, which is to pick a microscopic organism to discuss. I'm letting it slide because, as he explains on this episode, his chosen organism, Physarum polycephalum, is an amoeboid slime mold with a complicated life cycle that has a bunch of microscopic life stages. Protists are weird organisms that break a lot of our rules, and the size of this one isn't the only bizarre feature it has that challenges some of our very anthropocentric views on what life should look like. I'm excited I get to share such a unique organism with you all. For more information about microbes of the podcast, follow at couch underscore microscopy on Instagram or at couch microscopy on Twitter. While some of the content on this podcast may be relevant to human or veterinary medicine, this information is not medical advice. The views and opinions expressed in this program are those of the host and guest and do not reflect the views of any institution. Enjoy the episode. Uh-oh. It's, it's not fine. a good quality for a podcast host to have. I usually don't. I just, I keep going to like this bar on Friday nights and it's so loud. I'm like yelling. And then by like Sunday, I'm always like, ugh. Anyway. Okay. Welcome to Tiny Living Beings. Today I have Dr. Kyle David with me, who is a postdoctoral scholar in the Rokas Lab at Vanderbilt University. Hi, Kyle. How's it going? Hello. Going good. Good. Glad to be on the pod. I'm so glad you're here. Before we start, could you give me a quick summary of your scientific background and what kind of research you do? Yeah, so I started my scientific journey as an undergrad at University of Miami with you. <laughs> uh, I uh, was was very interested in, in marine biology, worked at the uh, sea slug hatchery that they have there, did my PhD in the Holonich lab at Auburn University, working on a whole bunch of different stuff, the marine invertebrate work, did research crews to Antarctica in 2020. And now I've, I've jumped taxonomic groups, I've jumped kingdoms, I'm now working on the yeast, the budding yeast, phylum saccharomycetina. So really haven't been interested in, in particular groups of organisms, but rather these sort of big uh, macroevolutionary, macroecological trends. That's very cool. Which organism are we going to be discussing today? So we are not going to be talking about a yeast today. Don't, don't tell my lab mates. We're going to be talking about the slime mold Physarum polycephalum. I'm very excited to talk about a slime mold. I guess before we get into details, can you briefly describe what a slime mold is? It's an amoeba, right? <laughs> yeah, so uh, slime mold is uh, a very general term that is used to describe all kinds of different organisms. It is not what a scientist like myself would call a monophyletic group. It's not what I'm clade. It's really just like any slimy guy. Um, so some fungus groups are called slime molds. The, uh, the slime mold I'm talking about today is an amoeba in the, the, the phylum amoebozoa. You, you know, you would know better than me how... The, the protist tree of life is kind of a mess, but it's, it's a protist, so it's, it's, it's not an animal, it's not a fungus. 
I believe it is sister, so sort of next to in the evolutionary tree of life, to Epistaconta, which is the group that contains animals and fungus. So we are, are more closely related to, to mushrooms than uh, either us or mushrooms are related to this, to this slime mold that I'm going to be talking about. But we're probably more closely related to this slime mold than to any other amoeba I'll talk about on this podcast ever. <laughs> so it's you all, say so, yeah. So it's all relative, which I think yeah. is, is cool it, to think it, about. <laughs> is there a history of slime molds and like discovering them and classifying them? Because I know that some of these amoeba slime molds were thought to be fungi for a very long time. I should maybe disclose that I am not a slime mold expert. I did have to do some some primary research before coming on the podcast. But yeah, you know, protists have been, stuff gets moved around all the time. Stuff gets moved in and out of, yeah. you know, wastebasket taxon. So oh, I'm, yeah, I'm I sure that, some people I thought. I find that term offensive. A wastebasket taxon. Yeah. <laughs> not describing the organisms that live in the, in the classification itself, but rather the classification is really defined by what it isn't rather than like yeah. any actual unifying characteristics. Exactly. That's a good way to put it. Okay. So what does Physarum polycephalum eat and where is it found in nature? Does it have a well-described ecological role? What is it doing out there? Yeah, so it really likes dark, moist places. So really likes being under logs. You're going to find it, yeah, uh, flipping over logs. I think it's mostly found in, in Europe, like temperate forests. Not, is, I don't think it's, it's considered a tropical species, really. And they eat bacteria. They phagocytose. So they kind of engulf their prey. In, lab, in the lab, they feed them... Like all all the papers I looked at, they gave them oatmeal. They love oatmeal. I saw that too, yeah. and we're gonna get into that because I have a lot of questions related to this. But I thought that was pretty funny. I know that slime molds have a complicated life cycle. Could you try to break that down a little bit? I was trying to do some research on it before the podcast, and all the diagrams were very confusing to me. Um, so, could you talk a little bit about the different shapes and appearances of this organism, yeah. like throughout its life? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, circle of life, not sure where to start, but we'll start with the, the haploid, what's called the amoebal stage. So this is a haploid organism, meaning it has just one set of chromosomes, kind of a gamete, you know, a, a, analogous to like a, a sperm or an egg, but it's totally free living. It's out there. So at this stage, it's it's microscopic. If you put it in water, it can grow a flagella and start swimming around in water. Like I said, it, it prefers moist environments. If it starts to dry out or it gets starved, it can go dormant. So not to this extent, but similar to like a, a water bear, it can kind of turn into a little cyst or a spore where it can survive till conditions become favorable again. But, but it can also uh, produce asexually as the haploid amoebal stage. So it can just continue doing its own thing, reproducing by itself, but... It can also find another amoebal stage carrying a, a different, so, you know, human beings have sex chromosomes. These guys just have one, one single gene that determines sex. Sex is kind of a loaded term that human beings apply lots of different characteristics to. Just talking about what an amoebal isarum might think of sex, just this one gene. And there are many different kinds of genes. I mean, each gene can have different mutations, which affect certain things. So some people say that this amoeba can have uh, 720 different sexes because there's so many different combinations of different types of genes that the two amoeba can have when they come together. But that's the other kind of interesting thing is 
a lot of times scientists will define sex as like the two sexes. One has a, a larger gamete size, one has a smaller gamete size. Again, kind of a sperm and egg thing. But these guys don't have that. All the gametes are the same size. So it's a really, really interesting, you know, very different than, than what a lot of like animal biologists would think about, uh, which is my background. So I, I thought this was all very interesting. But anyway... The really fun stuff happens when the two amoeba kind of merge together, and then we enter what's called the plasmoidal stage. And the plasmoidal stage, if any of you in your heads think about a slime mold, that's the plasmoidal stage. So I'm kind of cheating here. This might be one of the only macroscopic microbes that will be talked about on the podcast. But they can actually get over a foot in size. I saw one paper that said like several square meters, which is pretty impressive. It's very amorphous, very difficult. I don't know how, where you would start and stop to measure this guy because it's very fluid. Importantly, it's a single-celled organism, which is really cool. This is like a macroscopic, very large, single-celled organism. The two amoeba merge together and form one cell. And it grows the same way that most organisms grow, a cellular division but there's just no cytokinesis. So they don't ever, it doesn't, the cells don't split into two different cells. It just stays the same cell that is twice as large and then four times as large and then eight times as large. And then it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And the nuclei do continue to divide. So it's a multinucleated cell, which I thought was really interesting. Uh, one, one of my research areas is, is polyploidy, which is whole genome duplication, the state of having multiple genomes. I don't quite know if, uh, slime mold scientists consider multinucleated cells polyploid. You know, there are technically, there are, right, billions of copies of the genome in this single cell. So I, I don't know if anybody's looked at, like, expression or, like, how a cell handles having, like, billions of different nuclei, like, so many copies of all their genes and all their chromosomes. So that, that was really interesting to me. I'm tempted to start, you know, growing my own and, and sequencing the sucker. And, God, <laughs> I, I can't imagine how much money you would need to get a phased genome of of this guy but yeah so that's that's so odd it sounds like it, it's kind of breaking a lot of these rules that we think about when we think of just some sort of typical microbe or even like it's kind of in the middle of being unicellular or multicellular right yeah yeah very interesting and then the cycle will start all over again if it starts to get hungry or starve if it figures out it's in not a good place to be a slime mold anymore it can either kind of go dormant like the amoeba stage can uh dry up survive for for months on end that way without any need for food or it can irreversibly form these sort of spore bearing structures and then it gives off the the haploid amoeba and the whole thing starts all over so yeah you know you've got some okay. kind of alternation of generation stuff going on, some sexual reproduction, some asexual reproduction, a really, you know, different paradigm from, from what I'm used to. So all of these terms are actually like the things throughout biology that have always really confused me. Um, <laughs> so when it's in this plasmoidal stage, this is when we would picture it as this slime mold. Like it looks like kind of little arms of slime crawling yeah. on a tree or something. It's, like crawling it's on generally, a tree. Generally, yeah. yeah. It's like bright, vibrant yellow. And yeah, it's it's It looks like veins. Like it looks like yeah. veins that are yeah. that are wrapping around a tree branch or something. Yeah, and we'll talk about the veins, yeah. Okay. Um, and so tons of nuclei in this like veiny looking structure but there's not cell walls dividing them or cell membranes dividing them so it's like one giant cell and so when it goes from 
this plasmoidal stage back to spores or back to a conventional single cell stage? Like what happens to all the nuclei? That's a good question. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, I think it produces these sporangia, but that's also a term used in fungus and it's in plants. So I, I don't like to use these terms, but okay. it's kind of unavoidable. They form these spore bearing structures and okay. I don't think they can go back. So I think it's okay. one of those, they, they will die shortly after spreading their spores around. But yeah, how how they get the haploid cells into the sporangia, I don't know. Um, okay. You know, they have all these nuclei floating around, maybe some of them meiose and all the differentiation. Again, if you want to talk about like some of the single cell sequencing that's so popular these days, looking at like how cells differentiate, I think this would be a, re- a really cool model for that. But yeah, I, I don't know the details. Yeah, about what's it, actually going on on the molecular level. It would be a really cool model because it's like simultaneously one organism, but also like simultaneously a population kind of because of all the nuclei. But yeah, this is very confusing and very interesting. To make things even more confusing and interesting, I wanted to pivot to this thing that slime molds are very famous for. So before I ask this question, I want to read an excerpt from Wikipedia (laughs) that includes information from a bunch of different peer-reviewed studies, mostly from the UK and Japan, which maybe I'll link in the show notes. But I'm going to read this, and then I want you to explain it. I think that's the best way to do this. Physarum polycephalum can solve the shortest path problem. When grown in a maze with oatmeal at two spots, P. polycephalum retracts from everywhere in the maze except the shortest route connecting the two food sources. When presented with more than two food sources, P. polycephalum apparently solves a more complicated transportation problem. With more than two sources, the amoeba also produces efficient networks. In a 2010 paper, oat flakes were dispersed to represent Tokyo and 36 surrounding towns. P. polycephalum created a network similar to the existing train system and with comparable efficiency, fault tolerance, and cost. Similar results have been shown based on road networks in the United Kingdom and the Iberian Peninsula. P. polycephalum not only can solve these computational problems, but also exhibits some form of memory. So, like, what the hell? (laughs) Yeah. I don't even know what question to ask, but, like, I'm only familiar as a human being with human ways of problem solving. And so obviously saying that this slime mold can solve mazes, maybe that's anthropomorphizing it. I don't know. But like, what is it doing? Like, what is this? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Why is it so smart? Question. Yeah. Why is it so I, smart? I don't, <laughs> don't have all the answers for you. Again, right. This is a, a single celled organism. There's no neurons. There's no ganglia. There's no central anything. And it can solve these very complex problems, right? The shortest path problem, you know, maybe sounds easy, but, you know, this is like graph theory. This is like, yeah, takes takes human engineers, you know, years to solve. Um, Well, so before you continue, I just want to like, I don't know if I'm going to describe this correctly, but just a really, really basic summary of graph theory is there's little nodes that are connected by lines in a network and those lines are edges and those edges are given values that that are sort of like the length. So this this slime mold is basically picking which path to follow through a network or a maze that that's the shortest length. Yeah. It's not wasting time. Yeah, not 
wasting time, not wasting, you know, itself, right? Like it's connected with all these veins of, you know, full of cytoplasm that it uses to, to feed on. And yeah, so maybe I should describe that, that study, you know, very famous mm-hmm. uh, study where they had a Petri dish and they put a big glob of uh, oatmeal in, in the <laughs> middle and that's Tokyo. And then they had all these other little pieces of oatmeal that represented, you know, m- many of the different cities that surround Tokyo and so what the slime mold does, they, they started it on the, on the Tokyo oatmeal. So at first it just spreads out. At this point, it looks kind of what you would think of like a single cell. It looks like it's just like a big blob that it spreads all the way out, encompasses everything. But then it, when it reaches sort of near the edge of the Petri plate, it will, uh, then it starts to retract and then it forms, you know, it, it pulls itself inward and leaving these sort of veins that, that connect all the different little food reserves to, to itself. And then, yeah, when you take a picture of that, it looks very similar to the actual Tokyo rail system, which again is both the Japanese engineers and the Faisar and Polycephalum are motivated to find the shortest path connecting all these different population centers and or oatmeal clusters to, to one another. So... So my follow-up question here is, like, it says, you know, the the path it constructed was similar, but not the same as the existing train system. Do you think it did a better job than the the urban planners that yeah, designed the, the mean, train system? That's that's tough. You know, I, I have seen the, them, you know, overlaying the image on one another. It's not perfect. I, I don't think it's fair to say that anyone did a better job, right, the... the <laughs> Tokyo engineers are limited by like topography. I don't know what, you know, what sort of uh, mountainous features or like existing buildings are in the way that might change the, you know, reward function of what the most optimal path is. Whereas the slime mold just has to deal with a flat Petri dish. But yeah, I have seen some articles with the headline like slime mold outsmarts Japanese engineers. And I, I don't know if I'd go that far. Well, and it's hard to get, it's really apples and oranges because you could say, okay, many engineers construct a rail system through a city and this is one cell. But then you could say this one cell has like a million nuclei. So maybe it has the upper hand because we didn't have a million, a million people planning the rail system. So I don't know. I don't know which is, I don't know which would win in a fight, but in an, in an urban planning fight. Which yeah, I mean, uh, like a it, fun fight. again, given the slime mold can do this in like a couple couple days, all it has to do is grow out. So yeah, it, uh, again, really raises a lot of questions about what we mean by intelligence, how we define intelligence, like what intelligence means for different organisms and different nervous systems or no nervous systems at all. Outside of that, the slime mold really does show signs of learning. There are, are a couple papers I looked at. One demonstrated that the slime mold has something called uh, habituation. So it was given, it was put on one Petri plate. It had to crawl to another Petri plate. In the, in the middle, there was like a little... Was it oatmeal? Grid. Oatmeal in the middle? It, it had to find the oatmeal. But <laughs> okay. it, before it, to get to the oatmeal, it had to cross a bridge of that was like loaded with caffeine, which slime molds really don't like. Quinine, which slime molds really don't like. But it's, it can make it across, right? It's not like a lethal dose or, or too far. But the slime mold is like very hesitant. It takes it a long time to get across. But if you keep giving it that caffeine bridge, eventually it will get better and better and better and faster. Mm. And a slime mold that has encountered that same, you know, negative stimulus before will overcome it much faster than a, a slime mold that has never met it for the first time. So obviously it has remembered this stimulus and knows how to get about it. 
another study looked at um they would periodically give it i think they like dried it out or something some some adverse environmental condition at a regular period of time and it would then anticipate it where if you know every i don't remember the time the time point but like every two hours i'm gonna hit you with this bright light they really hate light bright light or like more arid condition and then if they withhold it it will still contract and sort of prepare and defend itself at that point that they would have hit it with the negative stimulus that's really interesting yeah so in the first episode of this podcast um seth and i seth was the guest we talked about nagleria fowleri which is the quote-unquote bringing amoeba and we ended up going off on this big rant about how you know, and I think this is going to be a major theme on this podcast, which is that there's all of these microbes and we think of them as simple organisms, but they're the product of just as much evolution as we are. And in order for humans and animals to survive, we've had to evolve like quite a bit of quote unquote complexity. And I guess this is just like a really good example of something that's evolved some sort of really complex survival strategy that not only is interesting and complicated and probably took a lot of adaptation and evolution, but also is very much related to kind of the strategies humans have in terms of memory and problem solving. I don't know. It's just really fascinating. Yeah, really interesting that, you know, all these organisms, you know, have been under an optimization process evolution for, you know, as long as anything else. So, you know, somebody who's coming from a marine invertebrate lab and PhD, I kind of have a similar chip on my shoulder where people describe complexity or our hierarchy. You know, humans are so dang smart. We have all these engineering tools. Also, maybe worth mentioning that Japanese bullet trains are designed off of kingfisher beaks, which is a bird. Hmm. Um, When the bird dives in to catch fish, so it deals with enormous pressure and it needs a really aerodynamic bill shape. So the tips of the bullet trains are designed on bird beaks and they are following a network that could be figured out by a slime mold. So I really think we should give a little bit more credit to evolution as a a problem-solving method. Very, very good point. Going off of all of this, so this is obviously, I don't want to say smart because I feel like smart is like a human quality that I don't want to just like project onto this microbe, but obviously going off of the intelligence of this microbe and all of these interesting human-related problems that we can learn to solve from it, what are some other areas of application that humans are using slime molds for? Areas of research or what can this help us solve any human problems other than where to put our trains? Sure, yeah. I I will say one other study I looked at found that they can make complex decisions about nutrition and they can build their networks in such a way that they're getting the right ratio of like protein-based food sources to carbohydrate-based food sources. There's obviously a lot going on in here. And more mechanically, they've recently attracted interest as a biocomputing tool. So instead of having transistors and electrical wires in your computer chips, you instead have a slime mold. Whoa. I have no comment. That's just crazy. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I, I am not a, a slime mold expert and I am definitely not a uh, 
engineering expert, but I think the idea here is they have all these like little tubes, you know, hate to use either of these terms, but like the very sort of simple in, in some level slime mold can sort of solve these complex problems, can move in, in complicated ways and responds to stimulus like light and different smells. You know, we talked about caffeine, we talked about oatmeal. So you can really direct the slime mold in a certain way to form logic gates, which is kind of the fundamental unit of computing. They've also used them to draw, I don't know why this is like such a thing, but I, all the time you find out about like animals driving, like little robot cars, like there was a, a snake was giving I, I legs. I, I haven't found this out all the time. Oh really? But okay. <laughs> Maybe I'm in the wrong circles, but like rats can Googling? like drive RC car- cars around okay. and they discovered that like, even if the rat doesn't get anything out of it, they'll still do it. They just like think it's fun. I've seen like goldfish in a vehicle before, and they've also done it with slime molds, where the slime mold essentially can pilot a vehicle around. I don't know much much more than that, but again, by responding to light, moving away from light, moving into more dark, wet environments, you can kind of direct it, and they can use this to to drive little uh, vehicles around. I don't I don't know what the what the greater scientific utility is beyond that, but. Okay, well, I guess, you know, a very like general takeaway that I'm getting from all of this is that humans are very selfish, and it was dumb of us to think we're the only things that have fun. Maybe fun evolved, you know, like a billion years ago, and maybe it was lost from some lineages, but it persisted, and, you know. <laughs> anyway. Sure, you know, fun, that's something like <laughs> intelligence, like, yeah. <laughs> who, who knows what it means to different... Yeah, yeah. Or how it can be applied in different ways to different forms of life. So, Physarum, Polycephalum, Physarum, Physarum, I don't know if I'm saying it right, is the genus. Doesn't matter. Okay, it's the genus. Polycephalum is the species. Are there other species within this genus? Do you know? That's a good question. Yes, there are a bunch of different species. Polycephalum is definitely the biggest one. Biggest in that it is represented the most in the literature. I don't know if this is a function of it being easy to grow in the lab by just feeding it oatmeal all the time, or if it is it found naturally in Europe, so if it's easier to come by. But yeah, it, this has has a couple dozen other species in it, and then of course Amoebozoa generally is a is an incredibly diverse phylum. I'm actually I'm excited that you bent the rule a little bit and are talking about a microbe that has a very prominent macroscopic part of its life cycle because I think people listening to this might be on a walk through the woods or on a on a hike and they might see this and it's it's really interesting like they might see bright yellow little trails on dead wood dead tree or live tree I don't know in the forest and I think people would probably assume it's a fungus or just not really care but you know, maybe people can now be on the lookout for slime molds. And yeah, then maybe absolutely. someone maybe someone can like, you know, isolate it and put it on a plate and give it to me. And then I can put it through some mazes and hang out with it. See if it's yeah, smarter absolutely. than me. Yeah, see, you know, again, getting along just fine with one single cell right alongside organisms made up of billions, billions of different cells. I mean, just the, I guess the major takeaway is this is an organism that has been around, has been evolving for just as long as, as humans being have, 
and found a way to solve a lot of the same problems, managing its nutrition, getting around negative stimuli, learning, remembering things, all with a radically, some might say simpler, a radically different set of tools, which I just find really, really interesting. Yeah, and like this idea of memory, like there's so many different ways that you can think about memory. Because obviously, like, we have a brain that's made up of neurons, and those neurons are able to store memories. But I mean, there's there's memory all throughout, you know, all of the kingdoms or domains of life. Like, there's there's immune system memories. Like, I, that's one I just thought of is, like, you know, innate CRISPR systems in the most early evolving microbes. So, you know, they can take in a foreign, I guess, viral sequence and in some way memorize it and act quicker against it the next time. So I guess memory is actually like a pretty common trait throughout all of life, even if it's not always nervous system based. Yeah, I wonder, um, you know, conventionally, you know, adaptive immunity, you know, like antibodies is considered specific to vertebrates. But I kind of wonder... Like, this is something I've been meaning to ask my immunology friends about. Like, it can't be 100% true, right? Otherwise, anything that would overcome innate immunity would just, like, stick around forever. Why isn't, like, a coral reef just sick all the time? <laughs> yeah, because, yeah, yeah. like, it would never be able to, like, ultimately, yeah. Well, you I know, that's... Yeah, well, there's so much we don't know. And I remember, you know, taking that immunology class in college. You know, we went through all of the different metazoan phyla and like their different types of immunity and right not everything has antibodies but things of some some invertebrates have really like sponges they have some really weird ways of fighting things off and doing it more efficiently over time like whether that's within their generation or like throughout the generations like there's definitely yeah, yeah i think that's a good point and somehow that's not, like, technically considered adaptive, but I think we get into this, like, kind of circular logic where, for a long time, you know, science was under this misapprehension that, like, humans were, like, the pinnacle, the most evolved. So if you start with that, and then, like, everything's defined by, like, how far away it is from humans, and if you're assuming humans are the, you know, most perfect organism, I think you can can lose a lot of the appreciation and, you know, like... You dry out a human um, and leave it without food for like six months. It's not gonna gonna be stupid idiot <laughs> and die on you. But if you do it with a slime mold, um, it will keep sticking around. So yeah, and you know, again, just the human aspect is just in order for us to survive, we had to evolve a bazillion different types of antibodies in this. T cells and B cells and this whole adaptive immune system, whereas other things are surviving fine without, you know, maybe with like two different cells or, or like two different molecules that can help them. So I don't know. It's not, I don't know that our way is better. It's certainly more involved and lengthy. Take the long view about which strategy is going to result in that lineage sticking around for couple million years i i know who i'd put my money on me too it might be worth mentioning that a lot of sex and like gender biological essentialists will you know it's like a gotcha like oh females have the larger gametes they have eggs and males have sperm and that's a biological truth that pervades throughout the you know the known universe 
And one, I think it's very dangerous even getting involved with that sort of argument in the first place because human beings are entitled to live dignified lives the way they want to without needing some, like, analog in nature to justify it. People can just... Yeah, yeah. ...are free to live. But it is... Maybe some people think it's worth mentioning that this is an organism that absolutely reproduces sexually and absolutely does not have anything that closely resembles a bimodal sex distribution. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point to make. And I know there's a lot of different organisms like fungi, I think some insects, they also don't follow this binary system. So, you know, just because human gametes look a certain way, that doesn't mean that we're like doomed to have to follow this binary system that has been fixed in the, you know, discourse around this for many years. Kyle, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Where can listeners find you on social media? For the, who knows, uh, foreseeable future, my, my main communication platform is, is Twitter, mm-hmm. where I'm Kyle the David, Kyle, T-H-E, David. If I jump over to Mastodon, it will, it will definitely be the same tag. Yeah, not to take a hard stand on Twitter, but I will say, I think you have a, Kyle has a very good Twitter He regularly has tweets that I would call viral, that have gone viral. I think you're a pretty prominent Twitter scientist. I think people should definitely follow you. Thank you. Is there anything else you want to plug? Uh, Yeah, go over to my Google Scholar. Start citing some of those papers. I've got got to start looking for jobs pretty soon. Cool. Let's boost that impact factor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. That's, that's, That's good. Me too. Go on mine too, people. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much for coming. This has been really fun. My pleasure. Yeah. Glad to be on. Wow. Who would have thought a podcast episode on a slime mold would end up addressing topics related to graph theory, urban planning, and sex? I think Kyle did a great job breaking down some complex concepts here, which I know I was confused about before our interview started. He was also really intentional and tactful with how he approached the concepts of human labels and how they have been applied to sex and gender in our society. Organisms don't have to follow the rules we humans set up for them, and Physarum polycephalum exemplifies this idea. Sex, gender, and sexuality as they exist in humans fall on a spectrum, and I find it fascinating that this spectrum is found in other places in nature as well. Maybe this will help a few bigots change the way they view their fellow humans. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, subscribe, and share this podcast. Tiny Living Beings is a Couch Microscopy production. Intro music is by Elf Power, and outro and transition music is by El Felipe Beniches. For more information on microbes or the podcast in general, follow at couch underscore microscopy on Instagram or at couch microscopy on Twitter. You can also find some relevant merch on couchmicroscopy.com slash store. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you all have a great day.